Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And thank you for joining us this morning. Now, this morning, we come to a passage that is complex. It's complex in that it is yet another picture of what suffering looks like for the Christian. I mean, we just finished this story of this beautiful example of friendship and the community that church provides and the difficulties of being pulled away from that. And now we're moved into a story that's complex. It's nuanced. There are many different elements to it that are difficult to um, understand, but still we see that there is a clear picture of what suffering looks like for the Christian. Through these series of events that unravel, it causes us to ponder and with some confusion even and ask ourselves, why would God orchestrate something in this kind of way? Couldn't the events in this story be prevented? Why did they go wrong when everything was seeming to go right? Is there a purpose to this? But I said it's complex because at the same time, as difficult as it is to read a story on suffering and to learn from that, at the same time, we peek into the nature of a deeper intimacy with Jesus. We see Christ's heart beating towards those who are suffering for his sake. Our passage this morning is a moment of immeasurable suffering and a deep communion with Jesus. We see a missionary demonstrate this remarkable Christ-likeness in his weakness. And it is through his suffering and that an inability to really correct his circumstances that we see Jesus show up and lift him up. And he's able to identify with Christ all the more in that moment. It's a beautiful passage and it's a difficult passage, which is why it's complex. But this is a passage and this is a message for each one of us. This is a moment that every believer will experience at some point and at some level. And there are parts of this that are difficult for me to relate to, just like there will be moments when you read it that will be difficult for you to relate to. But either way, we see that this is a moment that describes and shows the beauty and of the hope in the gospel of Jesus. There in the darkness of suffering, we find Jesus, arms open and struck with pure compassion towards the sufferer who covers them with the love so great that the sufferer becomes like the suffering servant. Jesus brings the sufferer so close to him that they resemble Jesus himself. Since this passage is the second half of the narrative, I believe that God has put on my heart 
another similar passage of Philippians 1, verses 20 through 21, that puts words into the pulse of this narrative. And this is what it says. Philippians 1, 20 through 21. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I come before you and I ask that you help us understand the meaning of this passage. That we would see the beauty of the gospel displayed outwardly through the suffering of your servant, but also displayed inwardly through the communion that he has with Jesus in that suffering. I pray, God, that you'd be with us, that you would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage this morning, as we're looking at it again, like I said, is the second half of chapter 21. And I want to kind of update you and just give you a background as to what the plan was for this, for everything happening. So Paul He's arriving in Jerusalem on his missionary journey. He has his disciples with him, or I'm sorry, he has other companions with him who are disciples, and they're arriving in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. This is when thousands upon thousands of Jews would arrive to worship in Jerusalem and to worship at the temple. Now, this is important because if you were Jewish, you were there. You made your journey to Jerusalem however you could. This was a significant time to practice the cultural customs of the Jews during this time. And we begin with Paul and his fellow missionaries arriving together, and there's just this warm welcome, this embrace with the Jerusalem church that they've longed for. And there's an excitement, there's anticipation, there's, uh, there's just this reveling in the glory of God through community together. They are coming together and they're just talking about what God is doing in and through the different um, missions, through the different churches. So he goes there, he greets James and the other elders, and they immediately get together and they start, and Paul starts telling them all that God is doing in the Gentile churches through his ministry. And this is especially important of, to remember for what happens next, because in, in, for all of the good news, for all the good news that they're celebrating, for all the thankfulness that they have in God speaking and, and moving through these churches, there was something that was causing them some serious anxiety. You see, James and the other elders, they're looking out, and they see the tension of the community. And having this opportunity to talk with Paul, they begin explaining the current situation at hand. You see, Jerusalem was tense with rising Jewish nationalism, with political unrest, with the presence of Rome looming more and more in control. And it was causing a tension in the community and the church was right in the middle of it. 
The church was stuck in the middle of it. Now we see divinely stuck, but they're trying to navigate how are we going to minister to people in this moment? Wanting to preach to the Jews and support the outreach of the Gentiles. The church needed a thoughtful strategy for moving forward in such a hostile season. And what was worse was in the city that along with the Jewish Christians who came to worship and to practice their different customs, there were also Jewish zealots who were in the city caught, and they, and they caught wind that Paul was there. Now, these people, they had heard of Paul's ministry, but they themselves were actually like a pre-converted Paul. They did not like the, this Christian movement, this movement of the way that was happening and there was a rumor that started spreading, and it reached Jerusalem, was that Paul was not only embracing the Gentiles into the family of God, but he was also discouraging Jewish Christians to continue practicing their cultural customs as Jews. This rumor, it spread like wildfire, and it just, you could feel the seething resentment that they had towards Paul. And it's here that James is, and the elders, they're explaining this situation to Paul. And they knew that these claims were false. They knew this was false. They believed in the mission. I mean, this, they embrace Acts 15, Acts 15, where they're going over the embracing of the Gentiles into the church, but still... They needed to think thoughtfully and carefully about how they were going to minister in Jerusalem at this time. But this is missional strategy at its finest. This is missional strategy at its finest. The church knows the truth of the gospel. And they know that the gospel is going to change lives. But they're also sensitive to culture. There are cultural sensitivities to be aware of. And if ignored, if ignored, it can bring significant difficulties towards spreading the gospel in the city. Because missional, effective missional strategy is not shaped by culture, but it is sensitive to culture. I'll say it one more time. Effective missional strategy is not shaped by culture, but it is sensitive to culture. No culture is the same. No plan is quite the same. Yes, there's one gospel. There is one gospel, but to minister effectively is to know your people and to know the community around you. And so we can see how God has placed this conviction, this kind of burden on the leaders, and they're all together. Think of this roundtable setting where James is telling Paul, what the situation is, and they're thinking through missional strategy. And James couldn't have been a better person for the, for the time, could not have been a better person for the role, because James was this respected leader. He's in the Jewish community, and he's also this strategist who has this brilliant idea that he presents to Paul with all of the elders to break all of these rumors. He says, we know we don't believe them. We do not believe these claims. We know you, but we need to do something strategic in order to put these rumors aside. So you can see here, 
You can see in the, in the next coming passages, verse 20, um, all the way through verse 25, this idea, this plan that James has to do away with all of the rumors. And Paul is the perfect person for this. He's the perfect guy for this role. He's the perfect one for this. So without accepting all of the customs and the approaches to Judaism, he's able to make a distinction between receiving the promise of the new covenant and honoring current Jewish practices. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 20, Paul says this. He says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Who, though, to those who are under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. To win those under the law. That's, that is receiving the promise of the new covenant and honoring current Jewish traditions and practices. You see how that works out. So following James' advice, this is what he does. Following James, James tells him there are four Nazarite men who are going through this purification process. You join in with them, join in with them, and this shows us, and this shows people very clearly and very simply that you are honoring us. You're honoring this culture by participating in this as necessary. And guys, I just want to tell you this. Though it seems simple and kind of complicated, this is a really good plan. This is missional strategy, and it is a good plan. It's well thought out. It's sensitive to culture. Everyone's working together as a team to share the gospel. So what happens? What goes wrong? Let's read what happens in verses 27, 28, and then we'll also read in verse 30. It says this. When the seven days were nearly over, this is Paul with the Nazarite men, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and they seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, as you can see, and as you know, this is not true at all. These are not the same Greek people that, that Paul brought with him. So this claim is completely false, but they're just seeing Paul with people, with men with their heads shaved, and they jump to a false conclusion, riling everyone up. And this is what they do with that. This is what they do. Verse 30, the whole city was stirred up. Again, this tension spreads like wildfire, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And our passage continues by showing us that the Roman guards come, they take him away, and the end of our passage this morning is people yelling to Paul, Get rid of him. This, this, this story, it teaches us that just because a plan is right, 
Just because the people are in the right place, the right strategy is put forth. When things should go right, they can still go wrong. Story unfolding is one that we question. Is that true? And whether or not, why did this have to happen? But this is what I would want to encourage you with as you're reading this and you're thinking about that. When everything should go right and it goes wrong, it doesn't mean it's left without a purpose. Just because something right goes wrong doesn't mean it is left without a purpose. The whole city is stirred up. And the people rush together. Notice verse 30 again. I just want to draw, come back to that real quick. That this, this move to shut the gates, this is a very dark move. This is a very dark action. Because what this did is that by shutting the gates, it was this intention to isolate Paul from the Gentile community. It was this intention to shut and close everyone else off. To shut off everyone and to isolate Paul, to make him completely alone so that they could kill him. The separation from compassion, the separation from support left him completely on his own. But in that moment, there, is, there are two purposes to discover. This is the first purpose. Is that in his suffering, in this moment of isolation and suffering, the hope of Christ in the gospel is displayed for all to see. The hope of Christ in the gospel is displayed for all to see. And let me show you. This is amazing. And let me show you how this works. Paul's suffering, he's displayed Christ's love and the purpose of Christ's suffering more than anyone else in the entire city. In this moment, let me ask you, who looks the most like Jesus? It's Paul. Do you want to see, of what, do you want to see a picture of what Jesus looks like suffering? You would see it in Paul. You will find it most clearly in this moment. And what I want to do is I want to show you that Luke is trying to demonstrate something to us. He's trying to show us something. So without you turning over to your Bible, stay here. I'm just going to keep referencing it. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 gives us the, the, um, the account of Jesus being arrested, being beaten and brought before the Jews in this community and then being on his trial. And... And what you're going to be looking at is Paul in this moment. Paul in this moment, verse 28, Paul was accused. Luke 23, verse 2, Jesus was accused. Verse 30, Paul was isolated and alone. The gates were shut. Verse 14, Jesus is isolated and alone. Verse 31, Paul is being beaten. Verse 16, Jesus is being beaten. Verse 33, Paul is brought into Roman custody. Verse 1, Jesus is brought into Roman custody. Verse 35, Paul loses all of the strength in his body to be able to carry himself 
forward. Verse 26, Jesus loses all strength in his body to be able to carry his cross. Verse 36, for the mass of people followed yelling, get rid of him. Verse 18, then they all cried together, take this man away. Do you see that? Do you see these? These are six moments that Paul identifies with Jesus because he is quite literally living like Jesus in this moment of suffering and persecution. And though this suffering, and through this suffering, he displays the glory of Christ. But remember that this was not necessarily the plan of what Paul was intending to do. This was an honor given to him. This is Jesus making Paul, in his suffering, look like himself. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 12, so I take pleasure in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties, all for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Philippians 1.20, going back to that pulse of this message, of this narrative, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. In our suffering, we may be pointing to Jesus more than we think we are. In our suffering, we just may be given the honor of displaying the hope and the love of Jesus more than we expect. And it is not through our own work, but his, that people see the hope of our Savior and our suffering. The second is, in that moment of complete helplessness, Weakness and suffering. There's a far deeper intimacy with Christ. Friends, it is Jesus who reaches out to us in the midst of our pain as one who can fully sympathize with us because he has lived through it. And this is not to say that that others can't sympathize with us. This is not to say that we can't sympathize with those that are suffering because we absolutely can. We absolutely can. But Jesus' sympathy towards sufferers is completely unique and far deeper than we can understand. Let me give you an example. A pastor named Dane Orland, he tells the story of, of, he's at the speaking engagement in India And as he's going outside, he's waiting outside for his ride to pick him up. And on the other side of the street, there's this homeless man sitting there. And he notices that this man, his his hand is deformed and it's a sign of leprosy. This man has leprosy. And he sees him and he's he's looking at them and and he says, I was moved with compassion. I was moved with compassion, but my compassion only went so far. There was like this, this block that I had. And what was that he describes as fallen nature, this sinful, this numbness to sin, 
this numbness to fallen nature that just prevented him from feeling a full compassion, a full compassion towards this man. And then he wonders, what would pure, unfiltered compassion look like? What would it feel like? Because that's what Jesus had. Jesus had pure, unfiltered, full compassion towards the lost, towards us. Jesus' sympathy is not a cool, detached pity. It's far, far deeper than that. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own and is drawn in to our distress like, like a doctor who has a cure for a disease that he has already had. He knows that feeling. He knows the pain and the suffering that it endures and he has the solution and provides it. It's that same type of urgency to distress that Jesus feels for us, our pain and suffering, it never outstrips what he himself shared in. And so I want to ask you, have you ever felt hungry and thirsty? In the light of Jesus, Jesus says, drink from the water, the waters of eternal life. Have you ever been despised, rejected, scorned. Jesus says, I will never cast you out. Have you ever been shamed, embarrassed, abandoned? Jesus says, you are blessed and I will comfort you. Misunderstood. Have you felt falsely accused? Have you felt lonely? Jesus has too and he says, come to me all who weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you all too familiar with death? Jesus says, I have lived through it. I have lived through it. Come to me. In our pain and our suffering, Jesus comes towards us, and coming towards us, he provides this comfort and intimacy that we did not know once before. But now that we are in it, we see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. In some miraculous way, we start to look like that outwardly. We start to look like Jesus through our suffering, through our compassion, our love towards others. We start to look like Jesus himself. Isn't that amazing? That is incredible, and that is what Paul is doing. That's what you and I will do when we are suffering together. When there's this suffering taking place, Jesus comes close. In our suffering, we realize how much we need the company of Jesus because we need a Savior who has lived through the pain through suffering and through death to carry us when we are too weak to carry ourselves. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know this, Jesus, 
who calls a sufferer a friend and carries them through the pain and displays the hope of the gospel to all. If you don't, this may be the moment that Jesus is drawing himself towards you to show you that. But if you do know Jesus, if you do know him, be comforted and remember that he knows your troubles and draws near to you in a way that others can't. And he draws near to you when others can't. So lean into him so that you too can say with Paul, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your son, for him coming close, for him leading us in our efforts to display the beauty of the gospel in our, in our neighborhood. And we thank you for Jesus coming close to us when what seems like right plans turn wrong and we are left to wonder what's happening in those moments and in further moments of suffering. God, we thank you that he comes close to us. And he draws so near, so close, that we get to see and be and have this communion with him. And in turn, we become like him. I thank you, Father, for him. And I pray, God, that this would encourage all of us in the gospel. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.